or a lightning bolt from heaven, but we come like your sheep listening to their shepherd's voice calling us and drawing us to come in fellowship and worship with you and then commanding us and instructing us so that we might live in a manner that's worthy of you. And, oh, Father, we need such words. Help us to believe and obey and to glorify your name by the lives that we live in this world and before the eyes of your Father. And we give you praise for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 4, by God's grace, I hope to finish this chapter. We'll start on John chapter 5 next week. And won't that be great? And um, it probably goes without saying, as we think about the Gospel of John, that the dominant theme of the Gospel of John is belief. It's the issue of belief. As we've observed already, John makes it clear that his objective in this book is to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that believing we would have life in his name, belief. Belief is everywhere in the Gospel of John, and so is unbelief. Belief and unbelief are contrasted all the way through the Gospel of John. The verb for belief, pistuo, appears nearly a hundred times in this book, 98 times to be exact. And the overwhelming majority of the time, it's used to speak of the saving belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, people uh, in whom the Holy Spirit does his work of regeneration and they are born again. Through believing in him, in the book of John, people become children of God, they obtain eternal life, they avoid judgment, partake of the resurrection, possess the indwelling Holy Spirit, are delivered from spiritual darkness, and find empowerment for spiritual service. All of that as a result of saving belief, saving faith. So belief is a major, major theme in the book of John. You can hardly read any section or any chapter of John without finding it. With this in mind, as we read this magnificent book, one can't help but notice the unexpected dynamics that take place as we move from one narrative to another relative to who believes and who chooses not to believe. Because what we discover is that, for example, in, in John chapter 8, Jesus is always rebuking people for their lack of faith in, in the face of the evidence that is before them, their foolish unbelief. And so he says things like this in John chapter um, in John chapter 8, Jesus says to the unbelieving Jews, because I speak the truth, you do not believe in me. You get that? If I came and told a lie to you, you would believe that. Paul picks up the refrain when he writes First and Second Corinthians, mainly First Corinthians. Look, if I came lying to you, you'd believe that. If I came and taught you false doctrine, oh, you'd bear that well. But because I come and bring you the truth, you don't believe me. It says something about your heart. It says something about your heart. And so he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? If, but if I speak the truth, why do you not believe in me? This is unexpected. Here's the evidence. And, and it's all there. If you just look at it and evaluate it, then, then you should believe. And they don't. They refuse to, and that's unexpected. 
Because we think there's a direct correlation between the presentation of truth and the direction of the heart. And it's not always that way. The Holy Spirit has to do something in that heart so it will desire the truth. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know me and follow me. I know them and they follow me. We see again in John chapter 12, we read this. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not willing to believe. Verse 38 of John 12. This was to fulfill the word Isaiah the prophet spoke when he said, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Uh, Isaiah had a, a very frustrating ministry, as did Ezekiel and some of the other prophets. Because God sent them to people who would not listen. You go preach the gospel where they don't want to hear anything about the gospel and they may kill you over it. And they went anyway. They went anyway. But honestly, beloved, if, we, if we're really tracking along with John's argument and what he's trying to say to us, what he's trying to reveal, especially in the prologue, at the beginning in chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 11, we shouldn't be surprised at this. Because in John 1.11, he says that this word who became flesh, he came unto his own, and those who were his own, what? Did not receive him. They didn't receive him. They didn't like him. They were offended by him. They took offense. And then in chapter 3, Jesus explains that he came as the light of the world, but the men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil, and so they rejected him. It had nothing to do with their, their capacity to add one plus one equals two. It didn't have anything to do with the capacity that there was not enough evidence, or the truth that there was evidence. All the evidence was there that they needed. That wasn't the issue at all. The fact is they had darkened, unbelieving hearts. And yet it was not as though everyone would reject him. In fact, some would receive him. And we, we looked at first, or John chapter 1, verse 11. He came into his own and they didn't receive him. The very next wor- verse says, verse 12, But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to be called, what? Children of God. Even to those who, what? Believe in his name. Belief and unbelief. Belief and unbelief. And not everyone would be guilty of unbelief. And we see this all the way through John's gospel. And if we put all of this together, if we really think about these statements, you come away prepared to see throughout the gospel of John that some of the people that we would expect to believe rejected him, and some of the folks who we think, not a chance, they'll never believe, the very ones to receive him. For example, we might expect that when Jesus went to the temple, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, you find the Sanhedrin there. They said they're waiting for the Messiah. They're all about the Messiah coming and rescuing them. And Messiah shows up, and they reject him. They took offense at him. Immediately, first contact, they took offense at him. They didn't like him. They wanted a different Christ. Is there anybody else up there? Can you send someone else? It's the only Christ. And we see this uh, again in John Chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and he's got a question on his mind, he doesn't verbalize it, so the Lord verbalizes it for him. And essentially his question was, what must I do to be saved? And, um, and Jesus tells him, listen, 
Nobody can do that. You can't calculate that. You can't control that. The wind blows wherever it wishes. I tell you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And how did, how did Nicodemus leave? As far as we know, he left in unbelief. You would think, here is what, what, what uh, the modern evangelical church would call a seeker, a religious seeker. He's even, he's, he's even a part of the guild. He's, he's, he's part of the establishment in religion. He's gotten the degrees. He's gotten all the training. And yet he leaves in unbelief. On the other hand, we come to chapter 4. Jesus comes to Samaria, a little town called Sychar. The uh, disciples deposit him there at Jacob's well. They run off to get some lunch at wherever. Where did we leave off last time? Was it Jack in a Box or was it Chick-fil-A? They run off to get lunch, and here this woman comes walking up to the well. She's an adulteress. She's an outcast. And by the end of the story, she's saying things like, this couldn't be the Messiah, could it? And the people in the village that she said that to, by the end of the story, they say, he is the Savior of the world. Samaritans, outcasts, rejects, half-breeds. The spiritual elite, unbelief. The down-and-outers, the poor, the nobodies, they trust. It's not always that case, but here you see it again and again and again and again. And beloved, it's a warning. Not everyone who says they believe actually believes. And it's possible to believe in a manner that is not consistent with true faith. It's possible to believe in Jesus without really trusting him. And so it was with so many. And so here is Jesus, and here's what we find beginning with verse 46. I'm sorry, with verse 43. Here's what we say. Here's what, what, what John tells us. After two days, now stop there. What, what was he doing for two days? Anybody know? Where was he? He was in Samaria. He was in the little village of Sychar. He only meant to stop there for a little siesta, a little bit of water, a little bit of uh, little lunch, and then move on. He's headed toward Galilee. It's going to be an, an, another two or three days of walking. But he gets there, and the people are so overwhelmed with the glory of Christ. They say, would you please stay? We have so many questions. Would you stay with us? Would you, a Jewish rabbi, I know, I know you should hate us, and most of your people do, but would you stay with us? And he stayed with them. He slept in their homes. He ate their food for two days, and he reasoned with them through the scriptures. And at the end of the two days, a great revival, a great move of the Spirit. And the question, the question as he then moves on is, what will happen next? If he is moving toward Galilee, which clearly this text, this text says, after the two days he went forth from there to Galilee, the question is, what's going to happen in Galilee? Belief or unbelief? Belief or unbelief? How are they going to respond? For, watch this, verse 44. If, um, I'll get back to that in a minute. Verse 44. For Jesus himself testified... A prophet has no honor in his own country. And so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Now, how many of you were paying attention to what I just read? 
None of you? Oh, okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. A few of you. <laughs> Some of you just woke up. Good morning. Um, let's, let's call this short little section here, 43 through 45, a signs-based welcome. A signs-based welcome. There are some perplexing things in what I just read. If you read it carefully, just out of your English Bible, um, he says Jesus spent two more days in Samaria, and then he resumed his journey to Galilee, which would have taken another two or three days of walking. And when... And, and, and when he decided to go to Galilee, he knew something about Galilee that we don't know. And John tells us something that perhaps we had forgotten after reading the other Gospels. And it's this, that Jesus had repeatedly said, a prophet does not receive honor in his own country. Now, let's read that section again. And so he says, verse uh, 44, uh, verse 43, after two days, he went forth from there to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, here's what you need to understand. Jerusalem had his own country. Galilee is his own country. Now, that really kind of that really kind of confuses things. He's going to Galilee. Why? Because a prophet never receives honor in his own country. That's why I'm going there. Now, some of you are going to be confused by this because in your, either your NIV or your New Living Translation or one of the paraphrases, uh, the word for isn't even in there. It's not there. And the very, the very next phrase says this. So, when he came to Galilee, the word so or therefore, that's not in your, your text either. And so, you're at a bit of a disadvantage here. That's why it's so important that we have a good translation of the Bible when we're reading. Because those words are in the Greek, clearly in the Greek. But if you have the NIV, or if you have one of the other paraphrases, it's not there. What you're reading is the editor's interpretation, not what the text actually says. So be careful, beloved. We miss these things when we're not careful. And being careful not only with what we read, but the version of the Bible that we buy. I know translation work is hard, but it's imperative for us to let the text speak for itself. And here we find the word for or because in the Greek. So why does Jesus go to Galilee? John says it was because he had no honor there. But again, this should be expected. In the prologue, John said he came to his own. You're going to see this. This is what John is saying. As you read the gospel that I'm writing, here are some themes that you're going to see. One of them is, when he came to his own, his own didn't receive him. Watch for it. It's going to be all over the place, and here it is. Jesus knows he's not going to receive any honor there. He knows he isn't going to receive any honor there, and that's why he's going, because I won't receive any honor. When Jesus remarks that he has no honor in Galilee, it's a bit of an understatement, frankly, a bit of an understatement. The fact is, last time he was at Galilee, guess what happened? The people tried to throw him off a cliff. How's that for a welcome? I'm going back to the people who tried to kill me last time I was there. Now, Jesus, Jesus wasn't dominated by fear. 
And all of his statements, both Old and New Testament, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Just do what my Father tells you. Just do what my Father tells you. And we saw in the last couple of weeks, what was Jesus' food? Jesus, I, I have food that you know nothing of. What was that? The, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me, regardless of what it is, regardless of how it makes me feel, and regardless of the consequences. I'm going back to Galilee, that place where they tried to kill me. Remember what happened that day? He was invited to be the guest speaker there at the synagogue. He was a rabbi, and so they invited him in. And so after the singing or whatever they did, uh, came time for the preaching. And so the way they do it is he would come up to the chair, and he would sit in the chair, and he would un unroll the scroll and read a, a, a portion of Scripture and expound upon it. And he read out of Isaiah 61, and, uh, and that, that part of Isaiah 61 that's very messianic, in other words, speaking about the Messiah, and he gets done reading the text, he closes the scroll, and he says this, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. You know what that means? This is the promise of the Messiah, it's being fulfilled right now. Because I am him. And you know what they did? They jumped up, they tore their robes, they grabbed his arms, they dragged him out into the street, they took him to the closest cliff. That it says the town was built on the edge of a cliff, and they took him out to the edge. They were going to throw him over. How many of you have been out at Mineral Wells? It's where we do a lot of our rock climbing. You get over next to one of those cliffs, you start to feel a little, little anxiety, right? You should. If you're not afraid of it, just stay away. So we tell our kids, if you're not afraid, stay away. If you're not afraid, stay away. Get on your belly if you want to look over the edge. Why? Because if you fall off that thing, you're dead. Or terribly injured. I'm not sure which would be worse. And that's what they did to him. They took him to the edge of the cliff. They were going to throw him off. And Jesus said, yep, that's where we're going. Beloved, this is the true spirit of a missionary. This is true missionary spirit. When you think about the men who went overseas before us to bring the gospel, even to places like America, among the Indians, and around the world, among hostile peoples of the world, where'd they get the idea that you should go to hostile people? You know where they got that? Jesus. He went where he was not wanted. He went to places where he thought, they might kill me when I get there. And by the way, Jerusalem became the same kind of place, or Judea, around Jerusalem. You remember when Lazarus died? And uh, he said, okay, guys, it's been four days. Let's go, to, La Let's go to, to, uh, to Judea. And his disciples say, really? I mean, they said, if we see you again, we will kill you. And Jesus said, oh, come on. Let's go. And Thomas said, all right, let's go die with him, I guess. He was fearless. His father wanted him to go. Any questions? No questions. We just go. One of the great missionaries said, we don't have to return, but we do have to go. That was the heart of Jesus Christ. It was the heart of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of that great story of uh, uh, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and the other four families that were with them down in Ecuador. And you know the story. They went to Ecuador, and they were trying to reach the Waldanis. At the, at the time, they were called the Alca Indians. 
and they were a murderous tribe. And sure enough, these five men land on the beach. They're, they've been dropping gifts. They're trying to uh, make connections with this tribe. They do make some connections. They're friendly connections. But the next thing they know, the whole tribe's coming out with spears. They spear them all, kill them all, and leave them in the water in the river, the Kurori River. Now, that's an amazing story of willingness to go and die to do your father's bidding. But you know what's even more amazing? You know what Jim Elliott's wife did? She said, my turn. And Nate Saint's sister, my turn too. And Elizabeth took her daughter and Nate Saint's sister, and they walked into the jungle. And they met up with the Waldani tribe. And by God's grace, just like in Sychar, almost every one of them came to Christ. They may kill us. They may. And yet, my food is to do the will of my Father. Is that, is that what motivates you? Is that what motivates us as a church? What has God called us to do next? What has God called for your family to do next? You know why Jolie Dalton just came back from Africa? It's because there's one of our families who said, God, whatever you want us to do, we'll go, even if it's Africa. And God said, okay, Africa. And there they are. You know why we're going to be ministering to the Dorans here in a little while? They're already in Texas, home sweet home, one step closer to heaven. You know where they live? In a country many of you have never heard of, Burkina Faso. How many of you have never heard of that country? Be honest, I never did either until they landed there. They told us they were going there. They're home from there. They're getting ready to go back. January, they go back. Why? Lord, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I have to go. I may not come back, but I have to go. And you know what? God may not be calling you over there, but God is calling us every day of our lives to say, I don't have to be comfortable. I don't have to be entertained. God is calling me to do things. Let me ask you this. Well, I am so far away from my notes. Let me ask you this. Are you discipling anyone? Are you investing in anyone? You know what you're called to do? You're called to make disciples. You know the Bible? You haven't been to seminary. Yeah, but do you read the Bible? Did you grow up in church? Have you been a Christian for more than a month? You ought, to, you ought to have somebody you're investing in. There ought to be people in this body and outside of this body you're spending time with. You're saying, you know what? I'm going to skip NCIS and I'm going to go meet with someone and just love on them for Jesus. I'm going to read the Bible with them. We're going to talk about the scriptures or we're going to work through some material together or I'm going to teach them something I know or we're going to go downtown and share the gospel together or whatever it is. Are you investing in other people? God's called you to do that. Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what God has called us to do. We should have this attitude that says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me no matter what. No matter what the consequences. And you know what the father was telling Jesus? Back to Galilee. They might kill me there. No, just trust me. Just trust me. And so away he goes. Jesus was on a mission that would eventually cost him his life. 
It was his devotion to accomplishing his father's will by any means of the gospel that he could, that he could use. And it drove him back among these people who previously had tried to kill him. And the next verse begins, so, or therefore, therefore, now, now let's, let's get context again here. He went forth from there, verse 43, to Galilee, for Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his country, so, or therefore, when he came to the Galileans, the Galileans received him. Does that confuse you? Confused me. Okay, so I'm going to Galilee because I won't receive honor there. They don't like me. They tried to kill me. And then the next statement is, and when he got there, they received him. What do we make of that? Make sure Jesus knew that they would receive him. What do we make of that? Um, as I said earlier, those of you who have one of those paraphrases don't even have the word therefore or so here. So again, you're at a disadvantage. All I can say, time to purchase a more literal Bible translation. Go do it. We'll give you one. You want God's word. Who do you want to hear from? You want to hear from the author or from the editors? I'll let you think about that for a moment. But here we find this other unexpected twist in John's narrative. He just said that the reason he went to Galilee was because he doesn't receive any honor. Now he says, so, or therefore, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received or welcomed him. What does that mean? They don't honor him, but they received him. So, if you read the commentators, there's so many different um, approaches to figuring out this, this little riddle. I, I think most of the riddles of the Bible unravel before your eyes if you just keep reading. Just keep reading. The next statement gives us a clue. Here we go. He says, Having seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. In other words, they welcomed him because of what they saw him do in Jerusalem at the feast of Passover, for they themselves also went to the feast. So his homeboys, the people that he grew up with in Galilee, they were in um, Jerusalem when Jesus was there. He cleared the temple. He performed all kinds of miracles. He was there for the better part of a year, and these people were down there. They saw it. The people that he grew up with, they saw it. And so they welcomed him. They welcomed him. What's going on here? Here's what's going on. The people of his homeland were welcoming or receiving him, not because they believed that he was the Christ, but because they discovered that he was a miracle worker. He was able to perform miraculous signs. That's why I'm saying this section, let's just call that a signs-based welcome. They were glad to see him now. They tried to throw him off a ledge before, but they're glad to see him now. Why? Not because they believe he's the Christ, but because they're happy to be identified with somebody who's a miracle worker. Watch this. This signs-based belief, a couple of examples, John 2, 23 through 24, Jesus was not impressed with signs-based belief. John chapter 2, just turn a page or two back to the left, 
John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, okay, now I said to you, when he was in Jerusalem, he was performing miracles, and they saw it. Now watch this. When he was in Jerusalem at, at Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which, we, which he was doing. You say, well, there's belief. Yes, but it's not that simple. Because if you remember, that was that message. I realize it was a little bit controversial when I think the title of the message is, uh, Has Jesus Accepted You Into His Heart? Um, because it's easy to say you believe. It's easy to say you believe in Jesus, but have you come to him on his terms? Do you believe in him savingly? Do you, do you believe in him in a way that he receives? Because verse 24 of that passage says this, but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. They were saying, Jesus, we believe in you. And he's saying, I don't believe in you. Your faith is not something acceptable to me. That's a little harsh, isn't it? No, it's just true. It's just true. You can say you believe in Jesus. You can say you believe because of the signs and wonders. But do you really believe he's your Messiah? Do you really believe that you desperately need I'll tell you who else didn't believe in that way. Turn to the right. Go back past John 4. Come to John chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Therefore his brothers said to him. Okay, this is, this is, uh, these are the children of Mary and Joseph, Jesus' half-brothers. Therefore his brothers said to him, Why don't you leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see your works, which you are doing. In other words, your miracles. Why don't you just go someplace where you can show off all your miracles for no one does anything, verse 4. No one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. You want to be famous? You want to be a star? Then why don't you go down to the feast and show them your miracles, brother? If you do these things, in other words, if you really do these miracles, then show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Isn't that amazing? They knew about his miracles. They had seen his miracles. And yet they mocked him because they didn't believe in him. You know, one of the greatest authenticating statements to the reality of the deity of Christ and the resurrection is how his brothers responded after the resurrection. Turn with me, just, just keep your finger here, but turn to James chapter 1. And you younger siblings, I want you to think about your older, your older brother, your oldest brother, okay? I know you like him. I know you, uh, you've had your, your moments but what would it take for you to look at your older brother and call him your God? Now, your older brother probably wants you to say that. But for you to say it and believe it, watch this, James chapter 1. His introduction, James, a bondservant. Look, the word here is doulos, it means slave. James, slave of God and of the Kurios, Lord Jesus Christ. James, I am James, 
the slave of God and my Lord, my brother, Jesus, who is Christ. And you compare John chapter 7 with that statement, and you got to go, wow, something happened. Something happened to James. Something seriously happened to his heart. For the rest of his life, he considered his older brother to be his Messiah. But not everybody, not everybody believed. There was sign-based belief all over the place. And so you see, beloved, Jesus isn't impressed with signs-based belief. Of course his homies would welcome him and receive him. I mean, he'd become a celebrity. He's, he's making his hometown proud. And maybe, maybe they'll even name a bridge after him or a restaurant or something. Maybe they'll put a statue up of Jesus or, or a placard. For vacation this year, I, I took my family to French Lick, Indiana. And I remember we were looking at, at this place. We had an opportunity to, to get uh, uh, a little cottage there at, a, at, a, at an unbelievable rate. And, um, and I remember when my wife told me, hey, we found this great place at a great price. And I'm thinking, French Lick, Indiana. I mean, who has ever heard of French Lick, Indiana? How many of you know what French Lick, Indiana's claim to fame is? Do you know? Anybody? There's one. It's two. Okay, say his name. Larry Bird. Larry Bird, great basketball player, born and raised in French Lick, Indiana. Guess what? You go into Pizza Hut, there's his jerseys, there's his high school pictures, there's signed autographs. I mean, everywhere you look, out in front of the high school, there's a big statue of, of uh, a bird and... He's everywhere. It's good for the economy. People want to come to French Lake, Indiana, not just for the springs that back in the turn of the century, they, uh, the turn of the previous century, they thought were healing. But now Larry Bird grew up there. Let's go see where Larry Bird was. I'm telling you, the Galileans were thinking the same thing. Let's not kill him this time. Let's make some money off of this. He's our guy. He's one of our sons. It's Jesus, the miracle worker, the prophet. Everybody knows him, the most famous man in the world. And he's from here. He's from us. Galilee, Nazareth of Galilee, where his parents, his brothers, his sisters, his aunts, his uncles, his whole family tree was from Nazareth in Galilee. And yet if they believed in him at all, for the most part, it was a signs-based belief. That's not the kind of faith Jesus was looking for. And many times it's not true belief at all. Usually this is not the, tr- the sign of a true worshiper. Especially if, the, if, if we're talking about people who are looking for signs. Looking for wonders. Looking for messages to come. Personal messages from God. They're looking for a lightning bolt or looking for some sign. Nevertheless, even though Jesus suspected he would receive this kind of signs-based welcome, he went anyway. Why? Probably just because he loved them. And he wanted to have, he wanted them to have every opportunity to repent and believe unto eternal life. After all, this, this was his family. And it was his father's will. Now, when we come to this next section, 
I believe John wants us to see the contrast between the shallow, signs-based belief of the Galileans and the true belief of a character that we have not yet met. And so John moves us from signs-based welcome to a desperation-based appeal. So here we go, verse 46, back in John 4. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come to heal his son, for he was to the point of death. What's going on here? Notice how John points to the fact that Jesus had done at least one miracle here in Galilee before. The fact is he did many miracles in the Galilee region. But the one that he points out was the one that only John tells us about, and that is the miracle of turning water into wine. It was a public thing. It was, it was a wedding. Jesus was very discreet. At first, nobody knew that it happened. But you think that stayed quiet? I don't think so. I think people all over the place, all over that region, heard that he had turned the water into wine. And John is pointing it out right here. And by now, everyone had heard. But what John wants to emphasize here is Jesus' interaction with this man who was not from Galilee. He was a royal official. Royal official comes from the Greek word basilikos. Sounds like basilica? Basilikos. It meant, it was a technical term that referred to someone who personally served a king, a minister or servant of a king. And you start fooling around with that a little bit and you realize the only person in that region who may have been called king and was called king was Herod. He was not a true king. He was a tetrarch. He was kind of a a bit of a ruler. But the people referred to him as the king. Now, don't mistake him for Herod the Great. Herod the Great was Herod, this Herod, his name is Herod Antipas. It was his father. His father was Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great because when Jesus was born, remember the wise men came. Who did they go to? They went to Herod the Great and they said, hey, we understand the king of the Jews is here. And what does Herod do? Herod sends his army into Bethlehem and kills all the babies. How was that, Herod? Before he got there, an angel appeared, told Mary and Joseph, told Joseph, take Mary and the baby and go into Africa, which they did. They went down into Egypt. When they heard that Herod the Great had died, they came back and they lived in Nazareth which is in Galilee. And who is in charge there? One of Herod the Great's sons, and his name is Antipas. Now, um, this, this nobleman was apparently a part of Herod's court. He was very wealthy. Uh, We know that because later in the story, we're going to see he has servants who were tending to his household. And he probably has a horse, at least, because the distance between Capernaum and, 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 uh, and Cana of Galilee is probably close to 25 miles. And to make it that distance in such a short a period of time, he had to be moving. Had to be moving. Not only that, but it was uphill all the way. Capernaum is several hundred feet below sea level. And Cana of Galilee is in the hill country. He would have been hoofing it uphill the whole 25 miles. He probably had a horse. We know he had servants. He was in some service to King Herod. And can you imagine 
what it would have taken to get him to lower himself, to humble himself, to ride all the way up to Cana of Galilee to talk to a carpenter's son. But he was desperate. He was desperate. He had to be desperate. And in this situation, John makes it clear, his son was nearly, was nearly dead. Beloved, here's another case of one that we would not expect to be an example of true belief. And yet it turns out he is. Do you see what John is doing here? In chapter 3, John let us overhear his conversation with Nicodemus that salvation comes in a mysterious way. It's not something that you can calculate or control. It's like the wind that blows wherever it wishes. So it is everyone who is born of the Holy Spirit. It's like the wind. And when the wind of heaven blows upon people, he does it oftentimes with people we would never expect to believe. I mean, who would have thought this, this nobleman who is serving this wicked King Herod would be one of Jesus' followers? Not a chance. Not a chance. Apparently, this royal official, however, had heard about Jesus. And for good reason, Jesus had been to Capernaum before. In fact, he'd been there numerous times. And he had done miracles there. In Capernaum, it was in Capernaum that Jesus healed the, cen- the centurion's servant. You remember that? Jesus was in those great crowds. And uh, by the way, there were crowds with him everywhere when he was, he was in Capernaum and around that area uh, of Galilee. He fed the, the, the uh, 5,000, which is more like probably 20,000 or more people in the area of Galilee. But this centurion came to him one time when he was in the midst of these crowds, and he comes to him and he says, my servant is dying. My servant is dying. And Jesus says, well, come to your house. You remember what the centurion said? No, 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 no. This Gentile centurion, no, you don't have to come to my house. I know how this works. <laughs> I'm a man under authority. I tell soldiers to come, and they come. I tell them to go, and they go. You say the word, and my servant will be healed. He was a Gentile, and Jesus is swallowed up by this crowd of Jews, and he cries out, I have not seen faith like this in all Israel. Jesus said, I'll come. And the man said, no, you don't need to come. Just speak. Just speak. And here we have a very similar situation. Here's a ruler, and he comes to Jesus. Except this man is the one who says, come, please come, please come. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to come. I'm not going to come. Hold that in the back of your mind. We'll come back to that in a second. Jesus healed many people, including this centurion servant. But I want you to, I want you to know this, just to kind of get the background here. He also healed healed Peter's mother-in-law in in Galilee. He also healed a paralytic, a couple of blind men, and probably uh, Jairus' daughter, who had died, he raised her from the dead in Capernaum. What's the point? This nobleman knew about Jesus. Herod knew about Jesus, asked about him, met him at his trial. He knew about Jesus. Jerusalem, that's a long ways from Capernaum. Galilee, Cana, 25 miles. I bet I could get there quick. 
I bet I could get Jesus to come back and heal him. And if I can or if I can't, doesn't matter, I'm going. And if at all possible, I will bring him home. Can you hear desperation? Desperation. Let me just say as an aside, nobody comes to Jesus apart from need. Nobody comes to Jesus apart from a sense of need. You don't want to wake up one morning buttering your toast, reading the paper, and think, you know, I think I'll, I think I'll trust Jesus today. What do you think? Maybe after mowing the lawn, before I have my bagel, I think I'll trust Jesus today. No, 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 no. You got somebody who's coming to Jesus, you got somebody in deep need. Deep need. And that's the case here. With, with just a little bit of belief. A little bit of belief. What, is, what does this man believe? He doesn't believe much, but he believes this. There isn't anybody who can heal my son. There is no hope for my son. He's going to die unless somebody does something. And there isn't anybody who can do anything except maybe this one man. And I know he's in Cana. And don't try to stop me because I'm going. It's amazing. Now to help you feel the weight of that, understand this. Okay, he had a fever. Okay, big deal. Tylenol. He didn't have Tylenol. Ibuprofen. No ibuprofen. No fever reduction medication. No anti-inflammation. Do you realize that medical technology never cured anybody of anything until around the year 1900. 1900. 113 years ago. You realize that? There were no cures for anything. Until Louis Pasteur discovered penicillin, I mean, there wasn't anything. And so if there was a disease, you were toast. If your body couldn't handle it, you were toast. That's it. You're going to die. And you know what? Talk to your grandparents. Talk to their grandparents. When your grandparents were kids... They went to funerals all the time. Many, many funerals. You know why? People died all the time. Let's say you had 11 kids. You might, you might have lost half of them or a third of them. You think of the missionaries who went overseas serving, the, serving Christ, had children. Most of them died. And a lot of times, wives died giving birth. It's unheard of in our day. You got a sick child? We go to the hospital, get him fixed. He's got pneumonia. Go to the hospital, get him fixed. And it works. I mean, when was the last time someone close to you took a child to the hospital only to have him die? It's rare. Not back then. He's got the fever. Oh, no, he's got the fever? I mean, it's curtains. And so he flies to Jesus. He gets on his horse and he runs that horse like that horse has never run before. 15, 20, 25 miles, however you calculate it, all uphill. If he left his home on horseback at dawn, he could have made it by 1 o'clock. And he did. It was right at 1 o'clock when he has this conversation with Jesus. Verse 47 tells us that when he found Jesus, he implored him. The word implore here means to beg him repeatedly. Please, Jesus, please, please, would you come? My son is going to die. There's no time. Would you please come? Come down and heal my son. Here's a man who had a great need, and that's important. As I said, Jesus doesn't 
Jesus doesn't mock our needs. He doesn't mock us for coming because of our need. You remember what he told the Pharisees? He told the Pharisees, listen, uh, they, were, they were asking why it was that he spent time eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners. And he said this, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. You got to know there's a need before you come to me. The, the reason you Pharisees don't come to me, you don't want to hang out with me, you don't want to trust or believe in me, is because you don't think you have any problem. You have no idea that God is against you. And so this official came to Jesus with this great need. It was too big for him, but not too big for Jesus. Now, before we look at Jesus' response, it's important to note, as I said, that this man does have a little bit of faith. What is his faith? His faith is this, simply this. I know Jesus can do a miracle. Maybe he'll do one for me. Now, keep that in your mind, because here's what happens. He comes to Jesus in verse 47, and he's imploring him, he's begging him to come to his, the bedside of his son, for he was at the point of death. And here's how Jesus responds. Ready? Compassion, mercy, grace. He says this. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Nice. <laughs> I'd get in serious trouble if I said something like that to someone. And so would you. Jesus, he's going to die. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. You'll never believe. That's a problem. You ought to believe based on the evidence that you've already seen and the truth that I tell you. That's his response. It may seem like it's harsh, but I believe Jesus is testing this man. And he's also teaching the Galileans something about themselves that needs to change. But he's putting the pressure on this man to see if his faith will either cave or, will it, or whether it will rise to the occasion. But this man's need is so great, he's not easily discouraged. He is going to get help from Jesus no matter what. He's determined to take Jesus to Capernaum. Here's another clue about the man's faith. It was real, but it was limited. It was shallow. He believed Jesus could heal, but it's, he seemed to believe that Jesus had to actually be there to his son to heal him. You have to come. You have to come with me. Get on my horse. Come. And we can make it to Capernaum in a day. And you can heal my son if he's still alive. Second thing is, he, he apparently didn't believe Jesus had much time. I mean, once, once the boy's dead, he's dead. And not even Jesus can heal him. And on those two points, he was wrong. Number one, Jesus could raise him from the dead. Number two, if he was still alive and very, very sick, he didn't even have to be there. All Jesus had to do was say the word. Nevertheless, it was faith. It was infantile. It was shallow, but it was real. And Jesus honored that. And so John has us move from a signs-based welcome to a desperation-based appeal, and now he shows us a wonderless miracle. A wonderless miracle. Look at verse 48. So Jesus says to him, watch this, to him, 
So he's speaking to this man, but he says out loud, unless you people, by the way, the word there for you is plural. The word people is inserted in our English Bibles to help us see that because we don't get that um, in English. The word you is plural. So he's speaking to him, singular, and he says, you people, plural, and, and being in Texas, they, they ought to have a translation just for us because it's y'all, right? <laughs> y'all, <laughs> y'all see, uh, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And notice the royal official's response. He is so focused on what needs to happen. The royal official says to him, Sir, come down, come down, come down my, before my child dies. Here's what he's saying, Jesus. Okay, can we talk about theology later? <laughs> would you just come with me now? Then you can come back and pick up the theology class, but would you come It's amazing. In verse 50, what Jesus says, what Jesus says here is great. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. Now, that was a pretty, pretty cryptic statement. It could be interpreted in many ways. Go while your son is still alive. In the Greek, it's more, than, more emphatic than that. And basically what Jesus is saying is, He's healed. Right now, he's healed. Go. Now, here's the problem. Now the man has to make a decision. What are we going to do with this? I got no miracle. I got no Jesus going to come with me. He's not going to touch my son. I got to decide, do I trust him or not trust him? Do I trust him or not trust him? I remember when my mom was dying of cancer, and my dad, who had recently come to faith, and I wasn't sure he was a true believer. And here we were, beside my mom's bed over at Harris Hospital. And she's gone. We'd already called the funeral home and everything. And you know the end of the story. So many of you came and prayed by her bedside, and, and she lived. She's alive today. But in that moment, we thought, she is gone. It's just a matter of how many breaths is, is she going to take now. And uh, here I am, and I'm thinking, it's too late, it's too late, it's too late. And my dad walks up to her bed and grabs hold of the rail on the side of it. And with tears coming down his face, he says to me, Well, son, I guess in moments like this, we either trust him or we don't. <laughs> and I said, Preach to me, dad. I need to hear that. And he was right. This guy had to make a decision. I'm either going to trust him or not. Go, your child lives. Now watch what happens next. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. So now he went to miracle-based faith, sign-based faith, to word-based faith. Now I'm trusting simply because Jesus says it. I haven't seen anything. There's been no flash of lightning. There's been no voice from heaven. There's been no sign. There's been no wonder. There's been no miracle. Jesus is not getting on my horse. This plan is not working out like I thought it would work out. And this is hard. In, in our day, the axiom is seeing is believing. This is Galilean faith. 
And the faith that Jesus wanted was just the opposite, believing and seeing. Trust me. God doesn't want to put us, he doesn't want us to put our trust in our own senses, in our own feelings, in our own imagination. He wants us to trust his word, whether we feel like it or not. That's the path of joy. That's what it means to be really free, to be really, to really know the joy of serving Christ. You take what he says, you do what he says, and then comes the joy. Believe it and obey it. And that's exactly what this royal official did. And verse 50 says, the man believed the word that Jesus told him, and he started off back on his horse. That's faith. That's what faith does. It doesn't wait around looking for a sign from the heaven. It doesn't look for some mystical voice to speak. It simply takes God of his word. And beloved, I know that there are some times when the circumstances are so difficult, it's hard to do that. Do it anyway. He is trustworthy. He has demonstrated himself to be trustworthy 10,000 times. And so he gets on his horse, and he rides away, and it is one o'clock. Now watch what happens next. Verse 51 through 54. Now he was going down. John always gets the details right. He was going down, all right. This downhill all the way back home. He was going down, and his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. Now, a little more information here. The text also said it was the next day, so apparently this man took Jesus at his word and found a place to stay for the night. The next morning he gets up and he starts going down to his, his town. And in the meantime, his servants are, are running as fast as they can to meet him. And somewhere on the road they meet. And this little interchange is beautiful. Because the servants say, what does it say? And he was going down, verse 51, and the servants met him and said, his son was living, or your son is alive, or your son has been healed. Now, is that good news? Is that good news? How would you respond to that? Tell me more. Tell me what happened. Tell me what happened next. What did mom say? What did grandma say? What did the aunts and uncles say? What's going on there right now? I can't wait to get there. Nope. You You know what this man's mind did? He immediately turned back to Jesus. And he said, Oh, man, that's great news. What time did it happen? (laughs) I want to know what time it happened. And they said, verse 52, he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, well, it was yesterday at the seventh hour. You know what time that is? One o'clock. I mean, at one o'clock, yesterday. And so the father knew He knew that it was that hour in which Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. And what happened? Shallow, infantile faith became word-based faith. Now watch. And he himself believed. And his whole household. You know why John put this here? To show us how it happens. To show us at least how it happened in this man's life. He believed a little. He believed a little more. And in the end, just like the Samaritan woman and the men in Sychar, we believe that he is the Savior of the world. 
That's what happened. I love this story. I love this story. So the father knew that it was this hour, and the result was he believed. And not just him, but when he told, by the way, the servants, they had no agenda. They were just objective witnesses to what happened in the house. They had no idea that, they, that, that their master had talked to Jesus, just given him the facts. That's what John wants us to see here. No agenda, just the facts. And the wind blew. And they were born again. It's amazing. So what does John want us to do with this story? You know what he wants you to do with this story? A few things, but number one, he wants you to marvel at Jesus. He wants you to be absolutely flabbergasted. He wants you to look at this story and see what happened here and go, that is an amazing Savior. He's unlike anyone. Marvel, first of all, at his fearlessness in pursuing his father's mission. Among people who tried to kill him last time, marvel. See it and marvel. Second, marvel at his love for the unlovely, like an adulterous woman he meets in a well, or a man who personally serves that old fox, Herod. Marvel at his love for sinners. Number three, marvel at his ability to heal without regard for time or space. He simply speaks, and the chemistry of people's bodies suddenly and radically changes. Marvel at him. Marvel at his ability to give life because he is life. Glory in Christ Jesus. Marvel at Christ Jesus. Be amazed at the living Christ. He is glorious. John wants us to marvel. I think, secondly, John wants us to trust. He's already told us that. So that by believing, you would find life in his name. Now, I don't know what problem you may be facing today, but I do know to whom you should run. It may be a financial problem. It may be some kind of an emotional issue going on in your heart, some soul sickness that may be going on right now, some problem in your soul. It may be a... It may, be, uh, uh, um, it may be a health issue. It may be a relational issue, whatever it is. I don't know what your problem is, but I do know this. Every problem that ever existed is absolutely in the hand of Jesus Christ. And he is your Savior. He is your Savior. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then this is John's point for you. Trust him. Trust him as your Messiah. Trust him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And one last thing I want to add here, I think John would have us understand, is that he is calling us to be careful of an over-familiarity with Jesus. You know what I mean by that? You know what the Galilean's problem was? This is, this is Jesus. We know his parents. We know his brothers and sisters. Who is he? Who, who made him all of that? Where did he get his education? He grew up here. He's one of us. He's nobody. You know, we can have the same kind of attitude. Oh, yeah, I grew up in Sunday school. I grew up in church. I heard all about Jesus. Yada, yada, yada. No big deal. Oh, yeah, I believe in him. And you are not amazed by him. You are not stunned by his glory because you have become too casually familiar with him. Oh, beloved, beware. Beware. 
Because it is possible to believe in Jesus without really trusting him. And even in Jesus' day, many believed, but few received him as Christ, the Son of God, and found life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many wonderful narratives in the Gospel of John that we have yet to explore, and every one of them show us the glory of Christ. And so we say thank you once again for revealing to us the glory of the Savior. Help us, Father, to respond appropriately in every way for your great glory and for our own great joy, we pray it in Jesus' name.